Welcome to Marrow Masters Season 11, sponsored by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and Sanofi. The National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, established in 1992, strives to help patients, caregivers, and families cope with the psychosocial challenges of bone marrow and stem cell transplant from diagnosis through survivorship. Season 11 of our show focuses on thriving in survivorship. Here's your host, Executive Director of the NBMT Link, Peggy Burkhart. Welcome, everyone. Today, we have Dr. Brad Zebrak with us. He is a professor of social work and a member of the University of Michigan Comprehensive Cancer Center, Division of Cancer Prevention and Control. Dr. Zebrak, we're going to call him Brad today, has clinical social work experience in both pediatric and adult oncology and is keenly aware of the supportive care needs of cancer patients and their families, as well as the underdeveloped systems available to adequately respond to the multitude and variety of needs of patients, their families, and all from diverse backgrounds. Brad is a longtime survivor as well of Hodgkin's lymphoma, diagnosed in 1985 at the age of 25. So in 1989, Brad and his wife, Joanne, completed a one-year, wow, one-year, 11,000-mile bicycle trip around the United States to promote cancer survivorship. Wow. Well, Brad, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, that's a pleasure, Peggy. Thanks for the invitation. I'm just so excited to get started here. We're going to talk about survivorship. As I mentioned in your introduction, this is personal for you, too. We are so happy that you are a thriving survivor yourself. We know that survivorship can be complicated for so many reasons, and I'm so thankful to you to be here with us today to help us break it all down. Let's do it. Peggy, I love that we're focusing on cancer survivors and survivorship today. It's something that I've uh, been thinking a lot about over the last 35 or so years since my own cancer experience back in the mid-1980s. You know, thinking back to that time when I was diagnosed and this idea of cancer survivors was actually in reference to the people who were left behind after somebody had died of cancer. Uh, you know, the survivors were the loved ones, the, the family members. Okay. And then, you know, by the mid 80s and, and into the 1990s, there was this emerging recognition that, well, wait a second, there are a lot of people who live after a cancer diagnosis. Uh, they live for months, they live for years, they can live for decades. And there was this emergence of attending to or starting to pay attention to the needs of these young uh, of people of all ages after their diagnosis and treatment for cancer, and thus emerged this notion of survivorship, trying to achieve a full and vibrant life after somebody has been diagnosed with cancer. Absolutely. And we know how important the quality of life is for these people as obviously their, their life has changed. It's a new normal. People hate that word, by the way, as you well know, mm -hmm. sometimes. But it really does explain what it's like for them moving forward and, and how exciting to have decades of survivorship. Gosh, one woman on our board, she is a 27 years out from her bone marrow transplant. This is so exciting and gives so many people so much hope. So Brad, tell us the medical perspective versus the patient experience of cancer. Sure. I've been spending a lot of time in my work as a professor and researcher in this field to, you know, get a better understanding of the experience that people have after they've been diagnosed with cancer. 
what it's like going through the months or sometimes even years of treatment, and then what could be the long-term effects, you know, not just physically in terms of symptoms, but even emotionally, socially, uh, what are the long-term effects that cancer has on people's lives as they move forward in their life? I think, you know, from a medical perspective, it's been great that oncologists and the, the cancer care world, you know, has recognized that people live after their cancer diagnosis and want to make sure that we get the proper follow-up care, the treatment, you know, whatever we might need after our diagnosis and treatment is completed, um, make sure that we get the appropriate medical care. But what was always kind of fascinating to me was this struggle that I would see the physicians and the scientists go through around what is a cancer survivor? When does somebody become a cancer survivor? Is it two years clear of cancer treatment or is it five years clear of cancer treatment? You know, there would be these debates about, well, when should survivorship care start or when should a patient transition to a post-treatment survivor clinic. And what I've always argued is that, well, the patient perspective is really important here because from person to person, everyone is going to think of themselves differently. Like you said, a lot of people don't like that term, the new normal. Sure, a lot of people don't think of their experience in those terms. Other people love that. They love the idea of thinking that after having had cancer, they can strive to achieve a new sense of normal in their lives. And if that notion works for people, then I think from the cancer care side and the medical care side, we should be promoting that. Similarly, a lot of people don't resonate with that term cancer survivor. Uh-huh. You know, the National Cancer Institute defines a survivor as somebody from the moment that they're diagnosed with cancer and throughout the remainder of their life are considered a cancer survivor. Well, a lot of people going through treatment don't think of themselves that way. How can I be a survivor if I'm still going through treatment? Mm -hmm. And even for those who are years or decades afterwards, that term also doesn't really resonate for them. They don't think of themselves in that way. And I think the challenge for those of us who provide care and support to cancer patients and cancer survivors is to figure out, well, in the individual level, what works for those folks and what are their needs and how might we be able to address their needs if and when those needs emerge? So the medical perspective is sort of thinking about survivorship as phases. Well, there's the phase of diagnosis and there's the phase of treatment and then there's the phase of transitioning from treatment to post-treatment. And I think from the patient perspective, it's a more fluid process that has highs and lows mm -hmm. uh, that continue, you know, for, for many, many years after cancer. Oh, that is so true. That's a great way of comparing it. Okay, so Brad, let's talk about the importance of a positive attitude and what that brings to this experience. Yeah, I think this notion of a positive attitude is sometimes misunderstood. You know, I think back to the first time I kind of started having this discussion around positive attitude was with my girlfriend at the time of my diagnosis, who eventually became my wife, Joanne. Okay. And we kind of reframed the notion of a positive attitude because I think at first I was thinking that, well, positive attitude, I, mean, I always have to be up. I always have to be happy. I always have to project positivity, you know, in every moment of the day as a way to battle cancer. 
And that was just impossible. I think that's just an impossible charge for too many people. And what we really did is we sort of redefined the idea of a positive attitude. Well, really, it's about being okay with however I am at any point in time in a given day. Oh, I like that. Yeah. You know, when I was going through chemotherapy, um, you know, at first it was, you know, I had a lot of worries and concerns and fears and sadness around what I was no longer able to do in my life. You know, at the time of my diagnosis, 25 years old, I was an active cyclist, outdoors person. I loved camping and hiking. You know, and after a few months of my chemotherapy, I could barely walk around the block. You know, I would just be too exhausted or nauseous. And what I had to start recognizing was that from moment to moment, from day to day, what was I capable of doing? Mm -hmm. And to just see those little successes as a day-to-day basis. So for example, I come back from chemotherapy and I would just want to crawl into bed, push the covers over my eyes and just hide. You know, and then after a few hours, I maybe reach my arm out and I'd turn on the radio and I'd start turning the radio dial back and forth. And I'd listen to sports or I'd listen to talk shows or I'd listen to music. And I go, oh, okay, well, this is, this is what I'm able to do right now. The next day, I felt a little better. I could get out of bed, maybe walk down to the kitchen, go to the refrigerator, get myself a little something to eat. I go, aha, these are my successes for today. Good, good. By the next day, maybe I'm outside, you know, taking a little walk around the block. So again, I really had to reshift my thinking around positive attitude to say, this is really about what are the little successes from day to day that can build upon each other. Um, And really being in the moment is what was most important. Oh, Brad, I love that. It makes me think of, well, now they call that (laughs) Mm self-care. And you were thinking of it way back then. And also grace, giving yourself the grace to have a bad day and know that, you know, the next day may be better and not beating yourself up. I think that is so very important for people to understand. Oh, yeah. So thank you for sharing that with us. Sure. Let's talk about the two faces of cancer. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on this? Yeah, sure. So earlier I talked, you know, I mentioned the roller coaster, right? And So many people affected by cancer talk about, you know, the roller coaster of emotions and the roller coaster of, you know, feeling well one day and feeling so sick uh, the next day. And again, it's part of this notion of positive attitude and acceptance that, you know, there are two faces of the cancer experience from day to day. People can feel both pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain. They can feel disappointment. They can feel fear. But at the same time, they can also hold on to hope and hold on to inspiration and look for inspiration on a day-to-day basis. So it doesn't have to be a, a one or the other. It's really recognizing that cancer is both of these things. It's pain and disappointment and it's hope and inspiration simultaneously. I like that. And being able to bounce back and forth between the two as needed. Mm-hmm. So, Brad, you have uh, what you call the five D's. I would like for you to share this with everyone. Sure. The five D's of cancer. I actually have to tip my hat to a longtime mentor of mine, Julia Rowland. She was a former director of the National Cancer Institute, the Office of Cancer Survivorship. Prior to that, she was a developmental psychologist who wrote some of the first writings back in the 80s and 90s 
that went beyond just the physical and medical aspects of cancer and talked about the patient's experience of cancer. Wow. Okay. Through her work, through her research, she recognized that there's sort of these five Ds, these five areas of people's lives that are affected when they're diagnosed and treated for the cancer. So the first D is what she called distance. And this is about relationships with one another, that cancer affects our relationships with our loved ones, with our parents, with our family members. Um, we're all going to be impacted in some way in our relationships. Absolutely. Second D was what she called disfigurement, that cancer has effects on our physical bodies, the physical integrity, the composition, the constitution of our bodies, uh, as well as our own image of our bodies, um, our physical function, our image of ourselves as sexual beings. All these elements are affected by cancer and diagnosis. Uh, the third is what she called disability, that in many ways, a cancer disrupts our hopes and visions and of things that we want to achieve in our lives. So that becomes a challenge. The fourth is dependence, that for many people affected by cancer, they're forced into becoming dependent on other people, perhaps in ways that they've never been their entire lives. You know, you can imagine the stereotypic 70-year-old stoic gentleman, right? Mm -hmm. Who his whole life has just been very independent and yet now cancer challenges that aspect of his life. It can be very difficult for people. And then finally, the fifth D is, is death, this confrontation of mortality, especially for young people. I focus particularly on how cancer affects teenagers and young adults. Uh -huh. And you know, for young people, confronting mortality at such a young age can be very challenging. So when I think about these five Ds that Dr. Rowland had identified, I could see that in my own work and my own research that people talk about being affected in all these different ways. But depending upon the time in life that people are diagnosed with cancer, the way that they experience these five Ds could be very different. So again, taking the example of, say, the 70-year-old man diagnosed with prostate cancer in comparison to uh, the 25-year-old man like myself diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest issues for me was the threat to my fertility. The doctor telling me that oh, sure. my chemotherapy may affect my ability to have children in the future. For a 70-year-old man, that's not going to be of issue for the most part. Yes. Very different. Yeah. So very different depending on when in life people experience cancer. I'm thinking as you're saying about the 70-year-old man, I'm thinking of the 70-year-old woman who's taken care of everyone her whole life. And for once in her life, she needs her husband or her children to flip the coin and be her caregiver. And how hard that is for a lot of the women that we deal with to be so dependent. Oh, yeah, for sure. And for people who've, you know, like you say, you know, their whole lives have been about helping and caring for others. Sometimes it's very difficult for people to then accept that care back. Uh-huh. And I guess what's really important to remember is that as much as giving care and helping others is a gift to others, receiving care is also mm -hmm. the gift to others. To allow people in and to help out um, can be an incredible gift as well. I've learned through the years that it's very hard at first for people to accept that help. But once they do, accept that their loved ones and friends and neighbors and family want to help, there is this joy that results uh, in being able for once in their lives to receive 
especially if they were always the giver. Exactly. So important to draw near to the, and not always, I know we're getting a little off base here, but not always just ask what you can do, figure out what you can do, Mm -hmm. you know, and and draw near to that person as they need help. Uh, Even years out, you know, just accepting that they need your help in different ways. Yeah. So Brad, thank you so much for that. That is terrific stuff. And we can put more information about Julie Rowland in the show notes uh, in case people want to look up some of her studies. That would be great. So Brad, this season, as you know, we're featuring on survivors who are thriving many different ways, many different paces, at different points in their life. It has been such a wonderful season to produce. And I just love how you are coming in wearing two hats here, the survivor hat, as well as the psychosocial hat. Uh, Thank you for that. I want to talk a little bit about finding purpose in social connections in survivorship and helping the survivor feel that it really all was worth it. Yeah, I think that's a big challenge. I think that's a lifelong challenge for humanity, right? Not just people affected by cancer, but everyone. I think we're all challenged to, you know, from our early days as teenagers, we're gawky and we're trying to figure out who we are and who we want to be in our you know, in our minds, in our bodies. And sometimes it takes to our 20s or 30s or 40s until people become sort of more comfortable in that sense of, of who they are and who they want to be. Sometimes it's a whole lifelong challenge of trying to figure out what one's life is about. And it can come and go. Some days we may be really clear about what is our purpose, you know, whether it's caring for others or having a job that has a lot of meaning or, or being that best parent possible. You know, life is about lifelong learning and trying to figure out where we can be of the most help or giving to others if that's what we want life to be about. There is a little, another side of this that I do want to bring up in this conversation about thriving and sense of purpose. is because again, in some of my work, there are some folks who talk about feeling the pressure of having to make a sense of purpose in life after having had cancer. Okay. That there's this, oh, when something bad happens, you're supposed, you know, bad things happen for a reason. Some people don't think that way. And again, coming back to how we care and support for other people. For some people, cancer is just like, I got to deal with this. Once it's over, I'm going to package it up. I'm going to tie a it in a bow, cut it aside. <laughs> and then move on with my life. And for some folks, cancer has no meaning or purpose in their life. And I just want to say that there's nothing wrong with that. But I think to your point, many people do find that cancer becomes an opportunity to consider or reconsider life, reconsider relationships, reconsider where we are in our life, and it can be an opportunity for change. Absolutely. I think it's important to recognize that there's many different ways to feel about it and there's no wrong or right way. Everyone has to do what works for them to get through it. Okay. So quality of life, this comes up all the time, post-transplant, you know, post-cancer. Let's talk about quality of life for a few minutes, Brad. Sure. I think quality of life is, there's multiple components to it. There's the physical, right? If we're, mm-hmm. if we're suffering from physical symptoms, from sickness, pain, obviously our quality of life is going to be poor. 
psychologically or emotionally. Uh, there's a whole other aspect of where people can be challenged and, and, and feel suffering. Uh, socially, again, when we talked about disrupted relationships, whether it's relationships in our family or relationships with our colleagues in the workplace, you know, those relationships are important to the quality of our life. And then finally, in what's called, referred to sometimes as a spiritual or an existential domain, you know, getting back to, you know, people struggle sometimes with the, why did this happen to me? Mm-hmm. And for those who can't really wrap their head around an answer to that question, that can be a struggle. That can be a challenge. I've heard people talk about, why would God do this to me to give me cancer? So kind of fitting in that spiritual, religious domain or challenges to faith. Cancer can affect people in that way. Mm-hmm. Again, it's cancer is not just all medical. It's affecting all these different areas of people's lives. And Brad, you know, one thing you made me just think of too is reassure people, therapy. This is so important for people to realize there is nothing wrong with needing to talk to a professional post-cancer. I think everyone feels like I'm supposed to just get on with my life. I'm supposed to be so happy. And there's a lot of PTSD. There's a lot of stuff people need to unpack. Can you just reassure our listeners of just how important that is to take the time for yourself to do that? Coming back to what we were talking about earlier, finding help, asking for help. Everyone understands whether they've had cancer or not. People understand that cancer is not a good thing. Right. Yep. And we're going to either all want help or want to help others mm-hmm. when cancer strikes. So, you know, being able to articulate what would be helpful, what would be useful, you know, again, sometimes challenging to people, but being able to seek that out is really important. I've always found it really interesting in working again with teenagers and young adults diagnosed with cancer. And so I was a social worker and I would often work with teenagers and young people with cancer. And you know, sometimes I would be successful in, in engaging them and meeting up with them. And sometimes they go, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want, you know, leave my room, get out, get out of here. And, you know, that's okay. That would be okay. Um, and I would find that young people would say things like, I don't want to talk to a psychologist. I don't need a psychologist. Leave me alone. Just let me, you know, deal with this cancer on my own. Sure. And then later, you know, months or years later, I'd see them. And sometimes I say, you know, it would have been really helpful if somebody had been there to talk to when I was going through my cancer treatment. So, you know, I think young people often kind of in that, you know, back and forth mode. But I think, yeah, being able to reach out for help is important. And it's so much more acceptable today. It really is a terrific thing that people can feel that they can get that help with. There's no stigma to it. So I really appreciate you driving that message home because we want everyone to get what they need to just enjoy the rest of their lives and have amazing quality of life. Well, Brad, this has been so terrific. Thank you. So wonderful. Let's end with any best tips, any coping mechanisms, anything that jumps in your mind that you want to share. We were just kind of talking about it a second ago is to reach out as difficult or as painful as it may be to just make that little bit of effort to connect, make that phone call uh, to a friend. Mm-hmm. That friend who you haven't talked to in weeks or months or years, but it's on your mind. And you oftentimes people question, oh, should I really do it? Should I not act? Do it. It was the worst thing that could happen is like they don't remember who you are. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could happen. And it's 
okay, fine. But connection, especially in these times, you know, these years going through COVID and now beyond COVID, Mm -hmm. you know, we've been forced into isolation in so many different ways. And we know that social isolation is bad for us, not only mentally, but even physically. Yes. That our our body, our, our immune system doesn't function well the more we are isolated. So reaching out and making connections are, are so important. Absolutely. In fact, post-COVID, we came up with a program called Coffee Clutch. It looks like, a you know, Hollywood Square's Brady Bunch. We get about 10 survivors or mm-hmm. caregivers and, and an hour and a half. They just let it rip. We have our licensed staff social worker leads it. And by the end, they are all friends. They stay in touch post-coffee clatch. We send them a a nice coffee mug and a gift card. And Mm -hmm. we're going to continue these programs because they make a difference for our friends who are so isolated. And they have told us that. They said, you do not know how much it means to get to talk to someone else about my GVHD who gets it. I don't have to try to explain it first. So, you know, on our website, we always have another one coming up and we have a wait list sometimes, but we'll get everybody in eventually and uh, make sure these programs continue so that people get that interaction. And like you said, the connection that they need. Yeah. Peggy, I'm so appreciative of what you and the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link are doing and providing. There's not enough support and service. There can never be enough support and service for folks. And being there, you know, at the times that they need that support is so important. So I appreciate the opportunity to join today. And ever since my own diagnosis and treatment, you know, all I've ever really helped for throughout my entire career was to do my social work, to do my research, to do my teaching in ways that would help others going through a, a similar cancer experience. So thank you for this opportunity today. Oh, you are so welcome. And thank you for today and for all of your knowledge and your personal experience and sharing it with everyone. You bet. This has been the Marrow Masters podcast. If you know someone who would benefit from the information in our show, please share this episode with them. And don't miss future episodes of our show. Follow Marrow Masters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. And to connect with the National Bone Marrow Transplant Link, visit nbmtlink.org or follow the link in our show notes.